0: What does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to worship God? What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does it feel like to worship God? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it mean to worship God? I suspect if we took some time and we all answered that question, we would have some overlap, but we would probably have a varying degree of ideas and answers to that question. We have different ways of worshiping God. We have different thoughts about what it means to worship God. And when you look at the scriptures, you find that people worship God in a variety of ways. And one of the things that that we find as we go through the scriptures is that it's not so much about the ways in which we worship God as it is our mindset about worshiping God. The book of Psalms is sort of the the Israel's hymn book. And the the Israelites use this in their worship. They, They use it as they make their pilgrimages. And many of the Psalms are about praising God. Some of the Psalms give us some indications of what it means to praise God. And I think Psalm 81 is one of those places. When you look at the beginning of this, the Asaph who writes this psalm with one of the worship leaders in Israel, he begins by simply saying, sing praises to God. Sing to the God of Jacob. Sing, beat the tambourine, play the lyre and the harp. blow the ram's horn. He's talking, I think what you get a sense of that is we ought to be something in which we engage ourselves. It's pretty hard to worship God from by sitting back and saying, I'm not going to be involved. I think it's one of the things that the reformers discovered in music in the church. That instead of a few people up front singing to everyone else, worship needed to be everyone engaging in. It's about engaging. It's not just singing, though. It's about with our minds. It's about being a part of what is going on. Sometimes we feel like it. Sometimes we don't feel like it. But the reality is, when we come together to worship God, there ought to be some engagement. It may be different engagement. He mentions different instruments. Now, I'm sure there were people in Israel who said, I really love the ram's horn. I hate the lyre. I mean, I suspect that they had their opinions, they had their preferences, just like we do. The problem is, we start thinking that our preferences are the only way, or the best way. When the reality is, when all of us are engaged, when all of us are worshipping God, when all of our hearts and our minds and our spirits are focused on Him, then we can do that in a variety of ways, and it pleases Him. But you will notice as you move on that it's not just about it's not just about the, the the mindset of worship. It's about this this sense of connecting with what God has done. He goes on to say, "This is required by the decrees of Israel." I suspect we don't typically think of worship as something that God commands us to do. It's something we feel like doing. Now, there are times we feel like worshiping God, there are times that we don't. And we have a tendency to say, well, if I don't feel like worshiping God, then it's hypocrisy if I go ahead and worship God. Scripture tells us if you don't feel like worshiping God, you do it anyway. Because it's the right thing to do. As the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt and God begins to set down the laws for how they are to gather and how they are to worship Him... One of the commands that he gives them is, you gather on a regular basis and you worship. But he goes on and says, this is the command, it's a regulation, and he made it a law for Israel when he attacked Egypt to set us free. And then it says, I heard an unknown voice say, I will take the load from your shoulders. I'll free your hands from their heavy tasks. You cried out to me in trouble. I saved you. I answered out of the thundercloud and tested your faith when there was no water at Maribal. What he's saying to them is, remember who I am and what I've done. Much of what worship is, is remembering. It's remembering who God is. It's remembering what God has done in the past and in our past and what God has promised for the future. Memory is so important to worship because it sets the context of why we worship. Why do we come together every week? Why do we, why is it important for us personally to spend time with God in prayer and scripture, fasting, silence, all these things? Why do we do that? What is the value of that? It focuses our attention on who God is and what God has done. Because we tend to forget. We think coming together every week is is something that is good, it's important, but it's not that important. We think our memories are better than they are. The older I get, the more I realize how bad my memory is. Maybe you have that experience too. We forget. And we need to be reminded and continually reminded and reminded again and again and again. And we come together in worship and we have our private personal time with God in order to remind us, to read the scriptures and to remind us, this is who God is. This is what God has done. This is what God has promised. It's imperative for us to do that. I find it interesting that he says to them that there are specific times when they are to come together. He talks in this passage, in this verses about the new moon and, and these kinds of things. And you know from, you know, when you look at Israel's history, you discover that God has set up for them festivals certain times of the year. They gather, they gather in worship on the Sabbath and other times as well. But there are festivals There are certain times every year that are markers for the people that are specifically designed to remind them of what God has done. And they come together and they remember that God led them out of Egypt. They come together to remember that God led them through the wilderness and he fed them and he gave them water. And they come together for the specific purpose of remembering that God gave them the land of Canaan and set them in a good place. And every year there are these times, not just even days, but sometimes there are are weeks and multiple days when they come together and they remember what God has done. We have those same kinds of days. I think that's one of the reasons why the, the ancient church fathers set up the church calendar. Because it, it is a way of reminding us what God has done for us in Jesus. So you have these, these six seasons of the church year. Advent that prepares us for the coming of Christ. the uh, Christmas which is about the incarnation of Christ. Epiphany, the life and the ministry of Christ. And particularly, the He comes in humility... And that he comes for the whole world. And Lent is the season to to ponder and to think about and engage with the passion and the death of Jesus, and Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, at the promise of Jesus. All of these seasons are designed to remind us. And and as I have as I've learned more and more about these seasons and engaged with them more and more, it intrigues me that there are churches that say we don't really want to follow that, we don't want to have anything to do with that we reject that but at the same time, a lot of times there there is a sense of we want to commemorate some of the secular holidays but not the church calendar and I've never been able to understand that it's not that you can't do both but the church calendar, like for Israel is a reminder for us it grounds us and roots us in what God has done Because we have short memories. We forget. And the problem with forgetting is that it's not just, well, I forgot. But when you read the scriptures, forgetting, when Israel forgets God, it leads them one direction, and that is into idolatry. To forget God is to become idol worshippers. You see it over and over and over and over again. The people forget what God has done. They forget who God is. And the next thing you know, they're worshiping the gods of the nations around them instead of Yahweh. You'll notice that beginning in verse 8, God says to them, listen to me, my people, while I give you stern warnings. Israel, if you'd only listen to me, you must never have a foreign God. You must not bow down before a false God. For it was I, the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt. These gods didn't rescue you. They haven't done anything for you. I'm the one who did that, he says. And you've forgotten. And that forgetting leads you away from God into idolatry. Now, we're probably thinking this, well, you know, we think about, we read about idols and we think, well, that's not us because we don't put little statues in our house and bow down and worship them. But that's not the only definition of idols. In a sense, idols are things that become more central to us than God is. Idols are things that we believe can, can meet the deepest needs of our lives instead of God being the one who meets those needs. Most of the things we we place in the position of an idol are things that God has given us. They're his blessings. They're good things. They just become more important to us than God is. They become more central to us. They become the thing that we believe can get us the deepest longings of our hearts. And the problem with idols is that There is a sense in which it feels like they work just enough to make us want to keep going back to them. It's sort of a slot machine mentality. You know, if you've ever ever seen things where people on slot machines, you know, you put in the quarters or whatever it is you put into those things and you keep pulling it, keep pulling it. And and the machine, the the casinos know what they're doing. The machines win just enough that people keep thinking maybe the next quarter will do it. Maybe the next one will do it. And we get hooked. And idols do the same thing. They appear to give us just enough of what we think we want that we keep going back to them. We keep thinking that, that they can do it. But the thing is about idols is that what they create really for us is a false reality. I mean, that's really the most damaging thing about idols, they create a false reality. That's why God says, you, you look at these idols. I mean, the golden calf that the Israelites worship They, they, they melted down their, their uh, earrings and all their jewelry. And, and they, they put it in the form of a calf. And they sat it up and they said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Really? That's the God that brought you out of Egypt? I mean, you talk about false reality. And he says to them here, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. That is real. And any of you who were a part of that, any of you who have heard about that, you know nothing but, but Yahweh. No one but Yahweh has done all of this for you. I'm the one that's real. The gods are not real. I think one of our attractions to idols is that it, it makes us feel as if we're in control. And we like to be in control. Because the alternative to that is that God is in control. And we have to trust Him. And so we like to think, we want to be in control. You look at how the gods of the the ancient nations around Israel worship their gods. And when Israel gets into idol worship, everything they do is, is an attempt to get the gods to do what they want them to do. Trick them, manipulate them, convince them. Do everything possible to get the gods to do what you want. And what really is happening is saying, we are in control of the gods. We love to control things. And we think that what we do can change what we want. There are are ludicrous examples of that. I was thinking about one this week. About um, 41 years ago, Tuesday, my family and I were at a Cincinnati Reds baseball game. We weren't supposed to be at that game. We were supposed to be at another game. But my, niece, my cousin decided to have her wedding on the weekend that we were going to see the Dodgers and the Reds play a doubleheader. And we're like, really? What were you thinking? Did you have no sense of what's happening in the world? Why would you play in your wedding on that weekend? So instead, we had to go to this, this Friday night game with the Reds and the Cardinals. And this game is progressing, and, and Tom Seaver was pitching for the Reds. He was a great pitcher back in the 70s. I was three, by the way, but this was going on. Uh, I remember it well. So, you know, this game's going on, and you get into the third inning, the fourth inning, the fifth inning. The Cardinals don't have any hits. And it started to get more and more interesting. You get into the 6th inning and the 7th inning. And every batter keeps making it out. And the Cardinals aren't getting any hits. And we're starting to, you can hear the buzz in the crowd. And we're starting to get excited as you get into the 8th inning. And the Cardinals still don't have any hits. And you get the ninth inning and the Cardinals haven't gotten any hits as you enter the ninth inning. And, and by the time, when the, when the last batter grounded out to the first baseman, Tom Seaver, pitched the only no-hitter of his life, and we got to be there and see it. It was awesome. You know what I did during that whole game? I got this in my head, that that if I would rub between my fingers after every pitch, that he would keep getting out. <laughs> Kind of a superstitious person when I was a little kid. So I keep doing this, you know, doing this every pitch. And you know what? It worked. He threw a (laughs) no-hitter. How do you argue with that, right? It's the most ludicrous thing in the world to think that me, one of 37,000 people in that stadium, doing whatever I was doing with my hands, had any bearing on what was going on in the field. But there's some, there was something in the back of my mind that was thinking, if I do this, that will happen. And we all go, well, that's just stupid. Of course it is. And then think about how many times we think we can control our lives and the universe. And get what we want from something other than God. And you see, the problem with idolatry is that it, the, it turns us inward. The problem with idolatry is that it, it, we become what we worship. That's why God wants us to worship Him, because we become like Him. And that's why He warns His people about worshiping idols, because we become like them. We become manipulative. We become self-absorbed and, and, and living with self-interest. It all becomes about us and our desire to get what we want any way we can get it. And what we forget to realize is that there there are a couple of things particularly that the scriptures keep talking about idols. That they are lifeless and they are deaf. They can't do a thing. And ultimately we come to the place where we become lifeless too. Matthew Bates says that it's like it's like buying a car from a, a crooked used car salesman. Everything around the car looks perfect. You look at it, it's shiny, it's clean, everything looks looks really nice. And then you get it home and it won't start the next day. And you have it fixed, and the next day, something else goes wrong with it. The next day, something else goes wrong with it. It's the most unreliable vehicle you've ever bought. They said, idols are like that. They look shiny and nice, and they appear to be exactly what we want. But it's a false reality. And we end up, it ends up hurting us. It ends up hurting others. There is a sense in which idolatry and injustice are synonyms of one another. Because idolatry is not just personal. It becomes corporate as well. And God is warning us. And you'll notice here when you move on to verses 11 and 12, God says... But my people wouldn't listen. Israel didn't want me around. So I let them follow their own stubborn desires, living according to their own ideas. There's a point where God says, okay, if, if this is what you want, I'm going to give you what you want. And God doesn't do that like we do sometimes of saying, fine, I don't care anymore. You know, I just, I give up on you. Because one of the promised, one of the repeated promises of scripture is I will never leave you nor forsake you. But God does this because sometimes the only way we can see how worthless and useless an idol is, is to let us live with the consequences of worshiping it. And so God says, fine. I'm going to let you get a taste of what it's like to worship idols. He does that to Israel. And they come begging back to him. And sometimes he does that with us. It's not vengeance, it's grace. It's grace to us because we get to see just how worthless and useless and damaging and destructive those idols are that we have begun to worship in our lives. And that's us it. And so C.S. Lewis says, in the end, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. Sometimes God lets us face the pain and the destructiveness and the difficulty of our idol worship. Because it's the only way to get our attention. It's the only way for us to see what is false and what is true. With the intent of turning us back to Him. Because it's always grace. It's always grace. Because when you get to the end of this, He says, my people wouldn't listen, but... If they will listen, oh man, I want, I'll bless your life like you can't even begin to believe. And all those things that, that are are so difficult for you, all the pressure and the stress, I'll be there in the middle of that. I'm not saying that I'm going to completely eliminate problems from your life, but I will be in the middle of it. I will be strength for you. I will be grace for you. I will be help for you. In the middle of your pain and your difficulty and your struggles, I will be there if you'll listen to me. There is a sense in which listening might be the most profound act of worship we can do. I mean, really, what is listening? Listening is paying attention. Listening is, is respecting someone enough to, to give your mind to them and, and to give your attention to them. It's not just what goes into these ears on the outsides of our heads and into all of the things inside of us that enables us to to actually hear noises. It's engaging it. We know when someone's listening to us and not, right? You can tell. You have a conversation with them, you're saying things, and the response, if they're not listening, the response is, wait, what'd you say? I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Oh, I feel real with value for that. Thank you. Right? Listening is paying attention. The, the, he talks about listening here five times in this brief psalm. This word is, is Shema and it's most famous for Deuteronomy 6.4, which is called the Shema. It's something all the Israelite children learn at a young age. Hear, O Israel, it begins. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. Yahweh is the only God. Worship Him. Here, listen. Listening is giving our attention. It's giving our energy. It's engaging. That's what it means to listen. And we feel valued and loved when people listen to us. As we said a few weeks ago in Psalm 6, One of the things that separates God from all the other gods that people worship, all the other idols, is that God listens. When we listen, we're simply modeling the behavior of Yahweh, who listens to his people. But when he listens, there's always action involved in it. In Exodus, it says, God heard the cries of his people in slavery, and he rescued them. It's engaging it's being a part of it. It's being active. It's listening. And it is one of the things that sets God apart from all the other idols and gods that people worship. Psalm, or Isaiah 42 is one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. I think it's because it's, it's kind of sarcastic, and I like that. But I, The prophet says, okay, you go out in the woods and you chop down a tree. And you cut this tree in half and half of it you cut up for kindling and firewood and you take that home and you use it to cook your food and heat your home. And the other half you take and you carve an image into it and you take that home and you set up on your shelf and you bow down and worship it and you say, this is the God who is for me. This is my God. He said, do you hear yourselves? Do you see what you're doing? Really? This human made thing That you created. This is the God that you worship. This is a God who can hear you and do something for you. that God can't hear? That God is lifeless. Yahweh. Yahweh listens. Yahweh hears. Yahweh loves. Yahweh cares. And He's for you. And that's why one of the most profound things we can do in worship is to listen to Him, to engage with Him, to open our hearts to Him and our minds to Him. That is, in a sense, the essence of worship. That God is so important to us, we pay attention to Him. That God is so valuable to us that we give our time and our energy to Him. That everything we do, all of life, everything we accomplish, all the things that we have, all the blessings, we just keep giving them back to Him. Because He is the only source of life and hope. And the deepest yearnings of our souls. Oh, my people, if you would just listen to me, life could be so different. Charles Spurgeon was one, probably the greatest preacher, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century. But he as a pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he tells a story about uh, a man who went to church every Sunday because he loved the music. You know, in the 19th century, you didn't have recordings, you didn't have things you could listen to in your home. You had to go to places where there was music, and church was one of the places where, where you could hear music. And so he would go to church every Sunday. He would listen to the music, but he had no interest in anything else about worship, no interest in God, no interest in the spiritual dynamic of worship. He just went to hear the beautiful music. And when the sermon started, he put his fingers in his ears. I've been trying to think, well, what would it be like to preach to people with sitting there like this, you know? That would be weird. You're getting a clear... Okay, you're sending me a clear message. I'm getting it. Every Sunday, that's what he would do. And one Sunday a fly sort of buzzing around his head as the sermon was going on. Well, you know how that is. You know, this fly is buzzing you, it's buzzing you. Finally, it landed on his face and here he is like this. And he's trying to get that fly off his face, you know, doing these things. You know what we do, right? And he became so annoyed by it that he very quickly took one finger out of his ear and brushed it away. And at just that moment, the preacher said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said, the guy was just so struck by that that he took his finger out of the other ear and he listened as the word of God was proclaimed and by the time that service was over, he was a changed person. I doubt if any of us walk around thinking of God with fingers in our ears. But maybe we're doing that in ways that we don't even realize. The psalmist is saying, life can be so much more if we just listen. If we just engage with God, open ourselves up to Him, pay attention to Him, be His people, and experience His grace. Father thank you so much for your mercy and grace to us. Thank you that you are the living God. Open our ears. Give passion and a yearning to listen, to engage with you. The grace of Christ. Amen.